0: welcome everyone to the fifth episode of uh at jerry talks um i am so honored today to have with me brent williams uh brent williams is the ceo of cliff decker hoffmeyer um a firm that kieti is partnering with so this is a very exciting time for us um i don't know how to say that i've just i'm just been so lucky and fortunate to be able to join kiety at a time of change and be part of the negotiations for um this uh, merger
1: so happy to have brent here so brent welcome thank you thank you very much Jerry. i'm not used to doing doing podcasts so forgive me if i'm a, a little bit nervous it's not quite my day job
0: so. Uh, Brent,
1: the lady does protect <laughs> I'm I'm very excited for for us to be doing this as well. We we as excited as you are. This is a a, a big step for our firm uh, from the perspective of expanding what we do to beyond South African borders. And we are very very excited about what this means for for both our firms. And I'm I'm really looking forward to you and your colleagues being my partners uh, and offering our firm different insights into what it takes to deliver a level of quality legal services in Africa that both our firms actually do deliver but to actually take it to another level in terms of what as Africans we're capable of i'm very very excited
0: about that i am really excited and i think you're you're right on the nose about the quality all that we do at KRT is deliver very good quality work for our clients so we're very excited to be able to get better legal services together with cliff Decker. this is a perfect blend and so far from everything i've seen from everyone i've interacted with such good energy so i'm really excited i'm using those words because i'm a millennial brent
1: as you <laughs> will know <laughs> so i'm allowed i'm yeah. allowed you absolutely. Um, normally, yeah, it's a bit, bit, yeah. bit woohoo, um, you know, uh, but um, yeah, you, you, you're forgiven and and you have the liberty to, to, to approach this as you deem fit. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Brent. So, normally, what we do is start with um, three quick fire questions that you can answer and tell us a bit more about yourself as a person rather than as a lawyer. I've done right. some research. Now, obviously, you know, there's nothing oh, on man. the internet about you. Um, I've done research Deliberty. with various people. Deliberately, <laughs> deliberately, <laughs> yeah. I've done some research with some people who in the firm who have been nice enough to help me. So the first thing, I hear that you're a petrol head uh, and that you own a few luxury cars, shall we say,
1: Alfa Romeos. Um, no, firstly, how did you, you get into lax- that? I wouldn't call them luxury cars. Are because... they not luxury cars? No, they're absolutely not. So you've got to draw a distinction between luxury cars and, you know, people who have an affinity for a particular mark. Um, okay. If you know anything about what people commonly say about Alfa Romeos, definitely luxury is not something that enters that term. Uh, okay. Rather, it's the description of Alfa Romeo. Passion, yes. Temperamental, yes. Um, a finicky, yes. All of those things. Uh, I've liked Alfa Romeos because I've found that the engineering from a quite long ago the engineering is quite interesting um I've, I've i i myself adopt the view that alfa romeo sells you uh, an engine an interesting engine and the rest of the stuff that is meant to go with a working vehicle is um they consider to be just an an added bonus you know it's an afterthought very few of them are pristine i can say this hand on heart others <laughs> That's part of the reason why I own them is because I like tinkering with them. And uh, I get a lot of satisfaction out of doing something that's very different to what my day job is.
0: Assembling things from a manual is exactly what I would not enjoy doing. I don't have the patience for for that kind of thing. So um, we're very different in that way the second question i had is on your ringtone a lot of us have noticed that um your ringtone is very interesting um (laughs) someone someone said it's erica badu but is is it and is that the type of music that you listen to uh
1: it is eric it is erica badu um and it is a clip of uh of of on and on um oh i like
0: that song oh yeah Uh...
1: so so she did a she did a version of it uh, that um is a slightly more housey version than the original version that she did. Yeah. And I and I actually like house, right? You so you like house? I like house. That's a very so, millennial, you, uh, Brent. Well, I mean I've got a fairly wide taste in music, right? So I like jazz, obviously like Miles Davis, I like folk rock. And sort of various times in my life I've liked different music and I and I still appreciate all of it. So I do go through phases.
0: Do you know that Shem raps? I will send you Shem's music. Did you know
1: that? I didn't know that Shem raps. That's raps. An, that's an interesting fact. I would he's, like your Shem rapping.
0: He's actually he's actually um, award winning. So
1: I will I will share that music with you. Um, that is spectacular. We will yeah. definitely put that on the internet. I promise you, <laughs> we will put that. Because you know, I think people often think about diversity from the perspective of demographics or gender or culture, but those are are such limiting ways of thinking about diversity. You know, one can think about diversity in much, much broader sense of the term. And I think it adds to sort of the richness of societies. It adds to the richness of organizations that they're people who paint. They're people yeah. who play the violence. I play the guitar, not not, well, not not by any manner of means. In fact, some people would say I reduce the guitar, but um, <laughs> but, the, but the fact of the matter but, is I do love music and yeah. so I, uh, yeah. I was going to ask the
0: third one was you're stuck on a desert island. Tell us a joke to get out of it. But now I think that I should ask you maybe a word of advice that you would tell us something inspirational.
1: Oh, my goodness so i am making the assumption here that i'm stuck alone and it's an you're important stuck alone.
0: you're stuck it's alone important. and you have to give an inspirational speech in order to get out or give us a few words of advice in order to to leave the island what would you tell us millennials
1: well the first thing i would tell you millennials is because of course we've only been stuck there for half an hour and now yeah. you just want to get off the island right yeah. so yeah. So that's the first, thing would the first thing I would tell millennials. <laughs> the first thing I would tell millennials is you you've hardly been stuck for half an hour before obsessing about getting off the island. Can we just spend some time thinking about what our problem is and what is the way in which we're going to get off this island that gives us half a chance at surviving? Right? So that can you mm-hmm. can you just calm down for a second? Can you just slow this down and can you actually think through the process of what it is that we're going to do because it might involve building a raft i i'm sorry to say this to you and <laughs> there, isn't, there isn't an app that's going to get us off the island right uh, because actually we've got no reception here even if your phone survived us capsizing um, and so yeah i mean I, my process in crisis and yeah i probably is, this is the best that I can say in response to your question, is my process in crisis is to slow down, to think about sort of where the core of the problem is and how best to solve it. And not how best to solve it in one fell swoop either, because you might have to solve your challenge in phases. You might have to start somewhere and build something to manage getting your way off the island. Then you might have to find a way to check Okay, so what do the tides do? And and how do the tides work here? And in what direction do they flow? And do they we have a sense yeah. of where we need to go to versus where we've come from? And where's the best place to launch? And those that's my process. My process that's,
0: is- that's such, a, that's such a good process. And it's important. When they asked me the same question, I said, um, an iPhone, an iPad, and a laptop <laughs> to get off the island as soon as possible. Uh, that was my answer. I wanted to get into your background and how you got into law and and why it is that you're a lawyer and how it is that you're the CEO of CDH at, um, at the moment. Tell us about how you ended up in a legal career and why you
1: chose law as a legal career. Yeah, to all of those things, a lot of it by accident and not by design. And I think that's an important message for millennials to understand. My perception of millennials is that, and I have a lot of respect for millennials, let me just say that. But my perception is that millennials see the world and see people being good at what they are doing and then pass judgment on themselves and their ability to do things because they say oh this person worked all of their life to do this they had some innate ability to have expertise at that i can never be mm-hmm. a good a good soccer yeah. player, a good musician because they're just good so i'll just give up trying to be good at anything Yeah, I think that is probably not true about most people who are good at what they do and often get there by accident. Mm -hmm. Of course, there are a handful of people who always knew that they were going to be superstars at something and just landed on their feet doing what they were always destined to do. But I swear there are a handful of people. Mm-hmm. For the rest of us mere mortals, we sort of fell into something, discovered a facility, did some more of it, knocked our heads, picked ourselves up, did it some more, got slightly better at it, and then landed there. So the general thing is, all by accident. I, Like I said to you earlier, I, I actually was wanting to be an engineer because I actually like building and constructing things and yeah. thinking through how things work. And that was mostly all the way through high school until I got to, I think what would be the equivalent of your grade ten. We called it standard eight.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, in our system, it was it was the point at which I became profoundly political, politically aware and active um, okay. at school. And the question of what I was going to do. To make a contribution to what we generally refer to as as the struggle in south africa um, the struggle against obviously oppression and racist oppression at the time that i was at school and one way to do that was to sort of follow in the footsteps of sort of many other activists who'd done so through a particular profession obviously one was teaching uh, Mm -hmm. one was teaching in the teaching profession and Mm -hmm. i had the benefit of being at a school where teachers did exactly that, that Mm -hmm. uh, they educated us to be able to take on what we were wanting to take on. And I thought maybe, maybe law, because there were some role models in my community where there were lawyers who were playing a prominent role in basically defending activists and using what was then apartheid law to, in fact, defeat its intentions in relation to their oppression or the use of the legal system to constrain and restrict um, activists.
0: A lot of Africans will not know what it was like growing up under apartheid. What was it like actually growing up in in South Africa?
1: So I, I suppose you've got to draw the distinction between sort of Petty Apartheid as, as implemented by the the National Party and the White National Party from 1950 onwards. Of course, I wasn't even born yet. I'm not going to tell you when I was born, but it was somewhere in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Um,
0: That's fine. And, mm-hmm.
1: and by the time I was born, sort of Petty Apartheid and separation of people into, artificial separation of people into race groups, as it were, Um, predominantly white, African, Indian, and colored, and there were other sort of niche classifications that they created, was real by the time I was at school. So by the time I was at school, I went to a colored school. I didn't go to a school um, that, that was attended by necessarily African people, certainly not white people, and almost not nearly Indian people. There were some Indian people, um, at, at, at the school that I attended. And high school high school was the same. There were a couple of Black African uh, students at my high school because my high school deliberately adopted an approach that was deliberately intended to try and frustrate um, petty apartheid and separate schooling. But it was... Uh, sorry, but it was sorry, food.
0: Brent. I, I don't know what you mean by petty apartheid. What does that mean? Okay.
1: So Petty Apartheid is typically a reference to the fact that there were separate neighborhoods created for these race classifications and separate um, amenities created. Can you believe it? There were certain beaches we couldn't go to, there was a sign that said you can't go to this beach. Okay, Um, We called it Petty Apartheid.
0: As a young person did you feel the frustration of that segregation Or what was it like? It was like, let me get on with my life. Because, I mean, at some point when you're young, you just go along with what has been given to you. Was was it always a natural instinct to fight?
1: No, it was... So if you grew up in an environment in which you were taught to challenge the system that is meant to create a lesser person of you, um, you fight it with, with every sort of hair and bone uh an ounce of blood in your body yeah. and and as activists we did that collectively so the activist movement was we called it the non-racial movement yeah yeah
0: that's amazing that's amazing how did you then transition to commercial law then
1: it's a it's a much longer story Julie, unfortunately <laughs> because then i then i i, I sort of i was a, i became admitted as an attorney in 1992 then the partner who ran our who was in fact started our law firm, um, a person by the name of Yusuf, Yusuf Ebrahim, who eventually became a judge, took up a position on the bench temporarily in 96 as a judge and and eventually became permanently appointed uh, as a judge. And it was, you know, 96 is just post the transition. There are huge mm-hmm. efforts to transform a range of things, including the judiciary yeah um, and he was a perfectly sort of appropriate appointment and what what black legal practice as we called it then saw happening was a a host of quite senior black attorneys being sucked into sucked onto the bench and we didn't mind but it, it then sort of left a void um, in, in legal practice mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. circumstance I wasn't becoming appointed to the bench I was yeah, a, a relative newbie, and I decided to sort of stick with the practice, and then had to decide sort of what direction the practice took because it was a it was very much a community-based practice, quite renowned for it. It's human rights work that it did, and I wanted to reposition the firm for a transitioning South Africa, and the point was how do I now sort of make a different contribution to our country in my capacity as a lawyer, and is there an opportunity to make a contribution from an economic developmental perspective. And so starts the transition to transition the firm to a firm that becomes a firm doing commercial, useful commercial, um, you know, from my perspective. And and so I I sort of moved the firm out of the suburbs into the CBD of Cape Town. and was one of the sort of the first few firms that set up practice in Cape Town and we were then cutting our teeth on sort of quite some simple, but, but important sort of commercial law work that was not, typically are
0: i think you'd be surprised you know um you know like with pe uh, transactions the pe funds will come with their uh, fancy law law firms who've yeah. done this transaction many times before understand exactly how um a shareholders agreement should work understand where the production etc will work but a lot of um family businesses will not have an understanding of that and i think that contribution is 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 invaluable it's something that they would not have known otherwise and on the same level really you know or try and compete on the same level
1: so so i get that point i suppose the question i'm asking using exactly the example that you you have you you absolutely right i agree that being able to give trusted advice to to folk who would not normally be familiar with how these things are structured is at least one advantage of actually knowing i think the question i'm asking is and are you able to influence those transactions being structured in a different way. So that systems of systems that have been structured in a way that benefits certain people, doesn't continue to be structured in that way. And that's what I'm not entirely sure of. So now we know, right, talking to you like a a fellow commercial lawyer. Now we know how it works. Are we succeeding in changing and reshaping the way it works? so that it works more fairly? And is that even possible? Is yeah, that question I think I'm
0: th- asking? That's, that's, an, that's a very good question and an impossible one to answer because the balance of power is so stuck against us still. Um, and so that's what, that's what we're doing here, right? We're trying to improve that balance of power so that one day you can dictate on your own terms, right?
1: Hopefully. So I suppose the question, the fundamental question philosophically is sort of how activists actually are we, you and I, in what mm. it is that we do and how co-opted are we prepared to accept um, there is an element of in doing what we're doing
0: yeah so, yeah, we do,
1: yeah. so do we do do we give a system credence um, yes, for the world which it operates mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and do we pacify ourselves by saying but we're helping people understand it but yes. are we helping people to change it and is it is it is that enough that's a very
0: good question enough? and yeah. and thank you thank you so much for that uh Brent we will we will have further discussions philosophical discussions <laughs> as the years roll by Tell me something, CDH is a very well-known firm. It can trace its roots back to 1853. CDH has amalgamated with lots of other firms, you from Y Ibrahim, other people have come, Hofmeyer later, DLA at some point. How have you tried to synergize the CDH culture into one package?
1: I, firstly, I think with some difficulty, uh, I can say that I've not tried, certainly as a, as the firm's managing partner for the last ten years, I've not tried to install, sort of, or make square, you know, square pegs out of round holes. In fact, my, my approach has been that that the firm's very different and disparate origins is possibly a strength that should be harnessed uh, and not killed. In other words, if you benefit from a from a massive diversity, call it biodiversity. Why would you now want to clone it into some singular form and then hope that what, what thing happens in future is a better version of what it started with? Having said that, I think that there are some key things that I've wanted to make sure remains infused in the way in which the firm thinks. And that is, understandably, given our history, a respect for fellow human beings and an undermining of the kind of historical discriminatory baggage that every one of us, certainly in South Africa, have to live with because we were forced to it, right? And it's been passed on not just by law, but it's been passed on generationally. So how do we actively undermine that and get to a place where there is basic fundamental respect for each other Firstly, as human beings, then secondly, as professionals, and how can we get to a place where we can see the value in everyone's contribution in a law firm? And I'm not just talking about the lawyers. I'm talking about everybody um, that makes a law firm functional. So that's a component of culture, to my mind.
0: I mean, that's amazing because a lot of law firms are very much into this is the culture. And I'm yeah. glad to hear that the culture is be yourself uh, and just be respectful. And I think that's that's a culture in itself. Um, The other thing I was going to say, but everyone will bring their problems to your door. I have to say also that I've been told that you're the most empathetic CEO uh, and that you, take, you have a very open door policy and that you take a lot of, um, can I say, crap? On,
1: the, on the... people are potentially being very generous in saying that I sort of try to give to give everyone everyone a hearing. Um, well, sort of, certainly everyone who wants to be heard a hearing. You know, it's very much part of my organisational philosophy that um, we have to create opportunities for people to be heard. And if I if I say that if I say that I have an open door policy. Then it can't be an open door policy that only works for some people, right? It's an open yeah. door policy mm-hmm. for everyone, yeah. right? And this and this thing does present its challenges because you kind of got to walk your talk. If you if you have an open door policy, and a candidate attorney or one of our staff members or security personnel want to see me, it's not for me to say no. Actually, go and speak to your whoever your line manager is. It is. I've said you can come and talk to me if you need to and so you will and it and it of course does create problems in terms of logistically then being available to everyone but i do i do try and yeah. I, I, yeah. Cer- I certainly feel like people feel that i am accessible in fact you may have you may hear my partner say well we can get never get we can, we never get to speak to him because actually he's always busy speaking to everyone else um.
0: <laughs> so i was saying that uh, in the one interview i read where they were talking about um your tenure i noted that um from from the interview i guess you've been extended past your term because yes. uh according to what i'm i'm reliably told you're irreplaceable um so i think that's a good thing but also yeah.
1: i want to know a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah that's a gross overstatement. Um, <laughs> I'm certainly a subscriber to the view that no one is irreplaceable. And if anyone is irreplaceable in your organization, you're doing something wrong. Because yeah. Yeah. Um, you're not then effectively succession planning or you don't have systems in place that, that can deal with um, a particular individual or personality not being part of your organization any longer. So no, I don't. I don't think that anybody is irreplaceable, and I, I, I do think that, yeah, you know, perhaps, perhaps um, that people are not just being too generous. They may be being too glib. The truth of the matter is, I think, um, is that no one wants this job, Jerry. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It, I'm not, and I'm not <laughs> saying it's. I, I, I'm not saying it's it's too difficult. I think you know it's it is a difficult job to do, uh, but it, the, there's a reason why I think certainly in, in law firms and large law firms that partners sort of have a use by date, you know, uh, it's an open question as to whether or not uh, my use by date has passed. There are days in which I feel distinctly that it has passed and there are days where I feel I still have some value to add to the business. Um, The day which I know um, is is coming where I say I really have had enough of this is the day that the firm has to make a different choice and I hope that we've done enough in the firm to make sure that this isn't a a difficult transition um, to a successor to a successor leader because as you might well know that in law firms is probably the most controversial thing that can ever happen in law firms. is is a change Uh, law firms manage this very poorly
0: yeah Um, I think no no one is showing you the door certainly from what I've heard but also um, have you thought about will you go back into practice Um, will you what will you do
1: well I've always wanted to teach and so part of my part of my uh, even when I was in my small law firm I taught um, the practical legal training program for for candidate attorneys and I did it for, for quite a couple of years. Um, I I do, I do like the idea of teaching and, and sort of making a contribution from a from an educational perspective. My ideas around what I might want to teach um, has moved over the years. There was a period during which I thought if one could teach transactional transactional law in a way that you know, we both never learnt it at university right this is exactly if you could teach a way to approach transaction law it would be like a proper subject right
0: you yeah. could do it
1: properly mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. like just mm-hmm. like the business just like the business schools teach it i think that there is something to be said for teaching transactional law to lawyers who are doing transactional work um, so i still think that there's an opportunity there and i might want to think about it I do have to live with the reality that I'm I'm now so far removed from actual transactional law that I might become one of those professors who can talk a lot about something, but they can't <laughs> actually do it yeah. any longer. Uh, another mm-hmm. thought that, it, that, that has occurred to me is sort of teaching around the management of law firms, um, whether they're large or small, I think that they are very peculiar dynamics that go with with leading in a professional services environment um, and i think there's something there and in fact what what myself and our knowledge manager did after talking about it for a long time was to actually develop a curriculum for leadership training um that we did amazing in conjunction conjunction with the university of Stellenbosch because there's there's no such course offers in south africa specifically amazing um, Amazing. I,
0: I think a lot of people can benefit from that.
1: And so I think that there's there's something there that is that is more relevant to my most recent skills. That I think I have something to say, useful to say. So so teaching is teaching is something that I'm you know I'm I'm sort of considering. And given that I bump into you millennials all the time. Um, I'm not necessarily thinking about it like a like an exer, which is what I am, um, and um, and 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 thinking that this is going to be my next job. It might well be a side hustle, to use your language. Um, I might have, I might have a, I might have, an, I might have a number of side hustles, um, including sort of part-time it. maintenance of Alfa Romeos, and some, some and some teaching. Um, and some consulting to law firms, and maybe some transactional work. So, I don't know. I think there are a couple of things I can do.
0: Um, I love it. I love yeah. it. All of the, all of those, Brent. I'm sure you'd be brilliant at. But please don't go yet, um, yeah. because we still, <laughs> yet is just coming in, and we still need you to hold our hand. Actually, yeah. one of the questions I wanted to ask you now that we're moving into talking about the the merger, you know, you came from a small law firm into a big pool. Uh, yes. Or a bigger pool. Um, what yeah. advice would you have for us um, as as we're transitioning?
1: So the, the first the first bit of advice that I would have is moving from a a smaller law firm into a larger one is complicated. Something that I think you are invariably going to wrestle. And I've seen I've seen lawyers in our firm who we'll come from our firm wrestle with it. And I'll explain exactly what I mean by that in a, in a second. Coming into environment that is not as intimate is the only word that I can use.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Where you have a sense without necessarily having to have a formal meeting and an agenda around what's happening in your business on a daily basis, because it's the business is relatively small. You have a clear sense of what Desmond is doing. He doesn't have to talk to you. You have a clear sense of what shemi doing he doesn't have to talk to you he doesn't have to have a meeting with you to say jerry this is what i'm busy with you know that yeah. already just because you know because the business is small enough something that you that is is quite difficult to come to terms with that you come from a small organization is that in a larger one it is difficult to know what's going on all of the time you'll sort of have pockets where it's You have a sense of what happens there, but you actually don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's quite a thing. It's quite a thing for lawyers to accept that they don't know. Yeah. So so right there is something that, you know, one has to come to terms with.
0: We will report back in um in, in a few months time the other thing i wanted to ask is uh, on the economic um outlook obviously we've done this in in a in a pandemic we've done it at a time that's very uncertain um both for south africa and for kenya's economy what, is, what what do you think is the outlook for for us and and for firms in general in the african continent
1: i do take a keen interest in economics so to speak and it's one of my it's one of my sort of varied pastimes. I, I have a, a serious interest in economics and Can I just tell you that
0: my, my dad is a, uh, an economist. Um, and you. so I've,
1: gr- I've grown up with that. So, so what's scary about the world at the moment is the extent to which people never really anticipate, not even the Marxist economists um, anticipated the extent to which the interconnectedness of the global economy has impacts all over the place. Yeah so china sneezes and the whole world catches a cold kind of thing yeah
0: yeah. um
1: the oil price changes and you know it freaks everybody out
0: yeah
1: the fed adopts a particular approach to interest rates and the whole world shatters that sort of thing um and so it's becoming increasingly opaque uh, and increasingly difficult to just look at your local market and say well things are looking rosy sitting sitting here in Santon, it's like bubble-type thinking Um, and it's very difficult to deploy that kind of thinking. You are looking at your market fundamentals, you are saying things are looking okay but we can't predict what's happening. So it makes it really, really fuzzy. I think that we've got our particular problems in South Africa, so we, we don't only have some economic challenges which we've had for the past, for the past, you know, sort of three, four years. We've been sort of at a low-level, sort of recessionary economy for a while, and then we got Corona on top of it, and yeah. then we have, our, and then we have our very complicated politics on top of that. That does yeah. us no favors. Yes. Yeah. So I often say um, that, and I suppose we're not unique in that way. You know, the story replicates itself across Africa. The interesting thing about us Africans is that we, we, we are hell of optimistic. Not necessarily delusional, but we're hell of a optimistic. Very, we always look to tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And we, and we, and we do have the ability to see through some really, really difficult challenges. And so, I'm hopeful for that reason. I'm hopeful for the reason that we have an incredible ability to be able to see through really, really hard times. And so, even although it's difficult to predict when and by how much things are going to improve um i do think that that the covert year was a very very difficult test for us and now talking specifically only for south africa um, and i think that if we can get a handful of things right both from our politics perspective and from our economic perspective and we can we can have a Sort of a finance ministry that doesn't go completely austere, because I think that's problematic, but is also not not uh, not so submissive in terms of you know the 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 party political alliances within, for example, the ANC. I do think that we have a chance. Uh, sorry, and we and we can improve sort of our regulation around key areas of the economy that are are standing there as growth nodes. Yeah. So so mining is still a growth node, manufacturing are sort of freeing up our our telecom space and our frequency, Um, adopting a a more innovative and less protective approach towards um, renewable energy. In other words, not protecting old style brown power. Just because yeah, our monopoly, yeah. just because our monopoly, our monopoly generator relies on brown power, and so that's what lies behind yeah, not wanting yeah. to open up. If we can get better at that, there's a there's a huge opportunity that I think uh, is open to us. And so I'm hopeful that we oh, we okay. can do it. And I think the East African market has represented a has represented sort of great opportunity for a long time. And, and make no mistake. East Africa as a region has faced challenges. And then sort of if you drill down to the various East African economies, they have their own particular problems. They're not unique. Um, they're not any different from the size of the problem that we've had. But I think that there are some amazing opportunities. And I, I do think that we do th- there is an opportunity for, for us to do great things. And for, from a Kieti perspective, for us to do great things in the, in, the, in the East African market, not just Nairobi, not just Kenya. Mm. I think mm. the opportunity is there.
0: I didn't ask, but how did you choose Kieti in the, in the, in the, and how did that partnership come about?
1: As usual, it's always partially by accident and partially a bit of science and partially sort of deliberate, sort of a deductive process where we, we got to the answer via different means we're a particular kind of law firm pragmatism is one of the things that we do right so we, we we are distinctly unsnooty and i use that term in the in the in the law firm sense of the term you know we we're not that law firm that says these are our traditions and this is the way we do things
0: yeah absolutely mm-hmm.
1: you know we're an upstart in our markets so we we're very agile in our market we do things very differently and and the approach is the same in relation to how we do things Certainly in the way in which we deliver services, I think one of the reasons our clients like us is because we're pragmatic, you know? We don't want to kill our clients on how profoundly we know the law. We want to get their deals across the line in a way that they want. That's what makes us different to a lot of law firms in our markets. And we wanted- We are so
0: aligned on that point. We're so aligned on that point. Go
1: ahead. Yeah. What we were looking for was, was then a, a law firm or certainly partners that would share that basic ethos you know that that client centricity that sort of commercial pragmatism but still very good lawyers and you'll know what i'm you'll know what i mean when i say that in any center that you go whether it's south africa whether it's nigeria whether it's Accra, whether it's nairobi you will find those law firms that say oh we just a cut above everything else Mm
0: -hmm, and this mm -hmm.
1: is and this is the way in which we do things and par, you know, that uh, pragmatism. There's only one way and it's our way, actually, mind you. Um, yeah. to do things. There's enough of that going on in every jurisdiction, including our. And we wanted partners who were different. So that was sort of what we were looking towards. And we obviously wanted sort of lawyers who were quality lawyers by the reputation and not sort of legends in their own minds kind of thing um, and, <laughs> we, and we had I ways And we had ways of finding that out and then the the bit that was by accident was a couple of people in our firm have worked with sammy and he's exactly that you know very commercial very pragmatic has has a good sense of turnaround time and quality of service and clearly you know not to take anything away from from sammy he kind of learned that where he was before as well but he sort of embraced that as being a way of doing business and we then said, well, we then actually conducted um, um, sort of a boots on the ground, sort of spoke to a couple of firms um, in Nairobi, um, including Sami, And we said, well, it sounds like we've got to try and do this with Sami. And the only way we can do this with SAMI, because respectful of the fact that Sammy was starting a business and made a deliberate decision to leave old law behind in Nairobi and to say, Philip, I can do this better than you folks can do it. Yes, I can do it better myself, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and now we're going to say, and now we're going to him and saying to him, oh, don't you want to join another bunch of old law characters? They're just 10 times more populous and your problems will be 10 times bigger. Uh, (laughs) We better know early from Sammy whether he has a mind to actually even try this. And so our approach to Sammy was on the basis, look, this is what we want to do. And we're telling you now, this is where we want to go so tell us now if we respect you for telling us now that you you're not actually signing up for this and actually you want to do kieti advocates in the way that you originally envisioned and we we respect that completely or are you prepared to try this with us because we think that there's a there's an opportunity for you and there's an opportunity for us yeah and that's how we that's how we actually ended up talking with kieti and we we be profoundly optimistic that you're a great bunch of people. It does sort of help that most of you are practically half our ages, right? <laughs> I love so that. There's, so there's some there's there's some legs in this. If it actually works, it'll be we'll be we'll be starting of something really great. Yeah.
0: Um in in fact another the, the one of the final questions i have for you is in terms of legal services then given that we are in a pandemic the economic outlook is not great for all of us, and we're doing this merger. What is it that will distinguish us as lawyers um, in the provision of our services? And pragmatism is one of them. And I think the clients do want someone who's not going to um, give them long memos and do a memo first before they even get into the work. They want the answer directly. Is it possible? Is it not? How do I do it? And what is the timeline and realistic timelines for that matter? What is it that, that is going to distinguish us in this market and how are we going to make sure that clients come back uh, to us again and again for the work that we provide
1: So you, you realize that you you literally are asking sort of the multi-million Kenyan shilling question right <laughs> it's, like the, it's like it's the it's the holy grail of how do practices distinguish themselves and, and the quest and the question is no different whether you in New York, London, Nairobi or Santa all of the law firms if you look closely enough all of the ones that compete with each other say pretty much the same thing about what they do and what they can do and i'm not saying that they lie because it's true
0: mm-hmm.
1: those that are peer firms do in fact compete with yeah. each other very competently around their service so how do you you know it's the it's the it's the holy grail of of law firm marketing is how do we actually distinguish ourselves you know what is our what do they call it what do you millennials call it your usp right uh and the thing is it's it's very difficult i mean I, i i said to you that i think one of the things that's unique about us in our market, right this is in this is in the south african market amongst our peers is that i do think that there's a there's a user friendliness to us as a firm that is quite that our clients like. Um, you know, people who are unkind to us, our peers might say, "Ah, oh, no, they're just cheap man. They're not. They're not. You know, <laughs> they're actually just cheap. Um, <laughs> they, they lowball us, and that's why they get the work." And,
0: and of I course see. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh,
1: and, and, and of course, that that could only be true for maybe one year. You can't you can't be lowballing people for ten years in a row and being yeah. good at it. So there, there must be something else that makes you sort of attractive and, and makes your clients return to you. And I do think that one of it is, is the fact that we are, we are commercially pragmatic. In other words, in the deals that we do with our clients, we're commercially pragmatic. And then in delivering the service to our clients, I do believe that we deliver it in a way that is accessible um, and understandable by our clients in a way where they don't feel like they are being taught by their lawyers just how little they know about what yeah. it is that yeah. they're doing. You yeah. know, nothing is yeah. more disempowering yeah. for a client. And, and so I think that, that that's, a, that's a key feature, but it's, it's a key thing. It's a, and I, and I, I, I do hope that we maintain that user friendliness and that you maintain it to your clients. So that, in other words, becoming part of our firm doesn't make you stodgy and less agile than you were previously as Kieti, because that would be a net loss. Yeah. That's only, yeah. One, that's only one thing. I mean, if you ask me specifically, aside from that, what is going to keep um, or assist in making sure that we at least retain some market share for what it is that we do and perhaps claw a little bit of market share away from others, Mm-hmm. it's going to have to be at the level of attention we give our clients and this is not de- saying sli- something slightly different from commercial pragmatism it means that we we're trying to stay close with our clients but not in an annoying sort of cloying way either we need to demonstrate that what it is that we're demonstrating to our to our clients businesses is a way in which we actually understand, if we can persuade our clients, right, that we either know the banking sector, they should come to us, not just because we're good M&A lawyers, but we actually intimately understand that sector. Or it's publishing, or it's technology law, or it's communications, or it's, you know, whatever it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. If you can
1: explain to your clients that not just are you technically good at what it is that you require to give them service of, but you actually understand this sector. I do believe that there's an opportunity to be here? And this is why we've actually adopted the sector approach. You might have heard it in all of our conversations that it's part yeah, of our strategy. Yeah. That's a part of, in you know, in a sea of gray in which all law firms are saying the same thing about, we can do this and, and, and it's not untrue, they can do it. They can do whatever we do. What makes the clients speak with us? And I do think that we are going to have to be a lot more active. I think a lot of my partners, especially in a larger law firm. And here's the other thing that you must resist. By the way, you asked me what would be different. There is something that happens when you become part of a a larger law firm. You kind of take your foot off the entrepreneurial pedal. Bad thing. You You all of a sudden think that you're part of this bigger ship and that the ship has this momentum and that you'll just be dragged along with it. It's the worst thing that happens, and I've seen it happen in our firm, I've seen partners sort of just get moved along. They're information, right? They're flying information, but I swear they're not flapping their wings. They've been dragged <laughs> along. They, they've been yeah. dragged by by the you know by by the formation and the power being generated at the front of the arrow by everybody else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that lawyers becoming more entrepreneurial so it's kind of a version of saying the two previous things i said about being pragmatic around what the services that we do about sort of persuading clients that we understand their business and then about being entrepreneurial and then the last thing i would have said is is leveraging innovation you know how do you sort of show your clients that you're not those kodak lawyers that are just you know they're doing things in the The same, the same old way, you know, like steam. Steam power is here to stay. We build (laughs) good, strong engines that rely on coal. Forget about the battery. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast with me. Thank you for welcoming us so warmly into the C D H family. We're so happy to be uh, a part of it, and we look forward to working with you. Excellent. So, everyone, uh, this has been the podcast for this uh, month. Brent Williams, um, CEO, of CDH. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next month.